you have a Bible, you can turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. And uh, we're picking up where we left off. We've been looking at uh, spiritual gifts. And uh, we'll be looking at uh, verse 1. Hope everybody's having a, a great Thanksgiving uh, week and that your turkey day or ham day or whatever you eat on Thanksgiving went well and you're enjoying your family. I've got my mom and dad are here in town and in this very service, so give them a warm welcome because they had to deal with me uh, for 18 years before they finally got me out of the house. And uh, so it's good. We always have a great time. Our favorite holiday as a family is Thanksgiving, and, and it's great to have mom and dad in town, and, um, and it's good to, uh, for them to be with us today. And we are uh, in 1 Corinthians, and um, we're going we're gonna to be in verse 1, and I've been doing a series. We're going to wrap it up today, Disciples Making Disciples. What we're focused on is really cross point. What is it that God has called us to do? Um, Jesus said, go and make disciples. And so to be a disciple means that we need to be focused on making disciples. I would argue that if we're not in one way or the other making disciples, then we can't really call ourselves disciples or followers of Jesus Christ. And so this series, we focused on a few things. The, the first thing we talked about was really disciple-making priorities. And at Crosspoint, we have a few priorities we want everybody to focus on. We really feel like if you focus on these three priorities with us, God will work in you and God will work through you disciple-making abilities. Those three priorities are worshiping God together, connecting to community, and serving in ministry. Those three simple yet not simplistic priorities are powerful arenas that if we move in those arenas, we'll feel and be led by the Holy Spirit to become disciple makers. The next thing we talked about for a couple of weeks is we talked about disciple making gifts. And we really focused primarily on 1 Corinthians 12 and the spiritual gifts that were listed there. And we looked at other passages as well. And that took us two weeks to go through that. Remember, there are speaking gifts. There are serving gifts, and there are spectacular gifts. And so we're going to close it out, having looked at disciple-making priorities, looking at disciple-making gifts. We're going to close it out by looking at disciple-making love. Now, I'm glad I didn't pluralize that. Disciples-making love. Although that might be another sermon for another time. From Song of Solomon, between a man and a woman, in the context of marriage. But that's not what I said. I said, disciple making love. And Jesus said that the critical thing for disciples is that they learn and they seek and pursue love. In fact, Jesus said in, in John chapter 13. Let me find it. John chapter 13 and verses 34 and following. Jesus said, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Jesus is saying one of the critical components, in fact, the priority over all the other priorities and gifts 
is that you seek love, that you receive this commandment to love one another and that other people will know that you belong to Jesus by how you love one another. What, what more critical disciple-making component could you have than love? We have to pursue love. Now, I'm not going to drone on and on and on about the difference between cultural love and biblical love and complain about how culture's gotten love all messed up and, and, and how it's different than, than God's biblical love and all that's wrong with culture and society. I'm not going to talk about that except for this one simple idea that cultural love is always presented to us as accidental. Have you noticed that? Like love just accidentally comes across, comes across us. Like we just suddenly are rushed with love. Oh my gosh, I have fallen in love. I'm in love. I didn't see this coming. I admit to you that when I saw Sherry Baby from a long ways away, I felt that rush, right? But you know that there's a difference between accidental love and intentional love. And you note that there's a difference between the way that the Bible and Jesus talks about love and culture talks about love. Culture says that it's a mistake. It's some kind of accident that's just going to happen and you just got to wait on it. Jesus says you need to pursue love. Jesus says you've got to get intentional about love. In fact, the Bible presents human beings as so messed up and so sinful that if we are not pursuing love, we will not be loving people. Can I get an amen? That's a difficult reality to embrace. We are not naturally good. We are not innately loving people. We are innately selfish people. And so Jesus says, man, this is something you're going to have to chase after in one way or the other. You've got to pursue love. I've got to give you this commandment that you love one another. Because if you do not hear this commandment and receive this commandment in power, then you will not be a loving person. So when we come to 1 Corinthians 13, one of the greatest chapters on love, we want to ask ourselves a few questions Committed to pursuing love, committed to seeking love. We're going to ask three questions and get them answered from 1 Corinthians 13. The first question is, why is love so important? You can't be motivated to pursue love unless you see the vital importance of love. The second question that 1 Corinthians 13 will answer for us is it it will answer the question, what is the measure of love? In other words, how do I know when I'm moving in the direction of love? Is it a feeling? Is it, is it you know, warm, fuzzy, pink, romantic, Hollywood love feelings? Or I mean, how am I going to measure and critique whether I'm moving in the right direction? Now, that question is going to be a dangerous territory for us because you're going to be tempted to look across the living room or down the street or at somebody, oh, they, I don't think they're measuring up to love. And what I want you and I to do, myself included, is not to look at others' people, but to look inside. Am I a loving person? Am I moving in the direction of biblical love? And then the final question that 1 Corinthians 13 answers for us about this love as we pursue it is, what's the key? What's the real key to being a loving person? So let's start with that first question. Why is love so important? Look at 1 Corinthians 13, starting in verse 1, a famous passage. Here's what Paul says. He says, if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, 
I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. And if I give away all that I have, if I deliver up my body to be burned but have love, I gain nothing. Now, what's the context? We've been looking at the context here at Crosspoint. And the context is spiritual gifts. And you remember that this church is dysfunctional. And they're dysfunctional because they're competitive. You have two groups of people primarily. You've got the elite group. And the elite group speaks in tongues and has all these great spiritual gifts. And they can, you know, they're just, they are apparently, outwardly, they seemingly are Holy Ghost filled, if you take my meaning. They look spiritual, they sound spiritual, they seem important. They're the talented, gifted people in the church. They're the elite. But then you have a second group of people, and they're insecure. They're they're the outsiders. They're not elite. They're the ones who have an inferiority complex because they look at the people who seem important in the church, and they go, well, I could never do that. I'm not very important. And, boy, they sure are kind of arrogant and braggy, and I I don't want to be a part of their clique anyways, and so I'm not going to be like them, and so I'm just going to take my ball and walk away. You know, an inferiority complex can be just as problematic in a church as a superiority complex because of all of the different division and divisiveness in their hearts. And so they're looking at it going, well, I can't do that. You probably got some groups that emphasize Holy Spirit. The sign of being filled with the Holy Spirit is outward manifestations of the Spirit. And you've got some people who say that spirituality looks like theological knowledge. You know, I've got my doctrine right. I'm a, I'm a, I know what doctrine is. I know theology. I could teach a theology sem, uh, seminary class. I'm, I'm filled with all this knowledge, so I must be more spiritual. So the probing question in 1 Corinthians 12 through 14 is, what is a spiritual person? What is the manifestation of the Spirit of God in a human being? What exactly does that look like? And Paul says that it's not gifts or talents that is a sign of the indwelling or the power of the Holy Spirit. That what is a sign of the Holy Spirit is love. In fact, in a very provocative way, it's so provocative because what he's saying is that there's a danger. You can actually operate in spiritual gifts, be talented, be effective, produce great results, be uh, seemingly where people just look at you and say, man, that is a spiritual person. But if you have not love, you are nothing. That if you, that if you are not A loving person, you might as well be a symbol that's just slamming over and over again, and you can't be heard. You gain nothing, you profit nothing, because if you do not have love for other people, it doesn't matter how religious you are, it doesn't matter what spiritual formulas you belong to, it doesn't matter what denomination you belong to, you are nothing if you cannot love people. That's very important. Because when we take that principle outside of the biblical language, when we kind of pull, okay, we say, okay, that's what the Bible's saying in its context. That's, that's what's happening theologically and contextually in the church of Corinth. But when you, when you begin to pull those principles out and you begin to apply it to your culture, you know what you begin to see? You begin to see human nature at work. 
And what is human nature and culture? Human nature always puts results before people, doesn't it? We always put pragmatism before principles. We always put competence before character. We always worship the, the sports star. We don't care what they do in their private life as long as they're winning for our team. We don't care what the businessman does in his private life as long as he can get me more money. We don't care about what they do or who they are. We only care about what they do. And you know what we begin to say? It doesn't matter who I am in my heart. It doesn't matter who I am in my mind as long as I can get the job done. And you know what God says? God says, I don't value outcomes and results. I don't value human doings. I value human beings being rested in who they are and getting in Christ and being rested. American Christianity has hijacked the gospel with the very thing that Paul is talking about right here. An unloving, results-oriented, don't need God because I'm so talented and I can get the job done. I can get my marriage done right without God. I can get my finances done right without God. I can get my life practical without God. And you know what? You could. You could. There's enough self-help books out there to make your life work without actually having to sacrifice in your worship and in your relationship with other people. Paul is saying, love is more important. Our gifts and talents important? Our results important? They have their place, but they are not the priority. You are to prioritize love above results. It's not about what have you done for me lately. I'm just going to love you. It's not about what can I do for you. It's about who I can be for you. It's not about what's in your living room. It's about who's in your living room. Too many people in our culture have all the big houses and they got all the couches and they got all the cars and we all sit around and we walk around and we say, oh my gosh, they must be really important when they are absolutely bankrupt in their ability to have a relationship with God, bankrupt in their ability to have a relationship with the very people that are sitting on the couch that they so worship. Paul is talking about something very human here because the gospel deals with this. God, love, relationship, being a person in relationship with others. This is what's important. Let us value our relationships above results. Let us not replace God with money. Let us be loving. You see, because anybody who gets to the end of their life and anyone who's about to go meet their maker will tell you, I had all this stuff, and I'm just now figuring out that that rider truck won't follow my hearse. All that stuff I wanted or had or didn't have and that I thought was so important, all those results, all that success, it was absolutely nothing because the stuff I can take with me is people and love and relationship. That's the stuff that lasts forever. That's where we profit. That's where we gain. That's where we're something. That's where we're someone in Christ is when we have those relationships and that love. You see how important love is? Pursue love prioritize love. And you ask, man, that's important. I don't want to be just a noisy gong. I I don't want to have all these prophetic powers and yet not have people. I don't want to gain the whole world and yet lose my soul. 
I want love. What is love? What is the measure? How do I know I'm moving in the right direction? Tell me how I know I'm moving in the right direction. Paul tells us, starting in verse 4, and I love the way he does this because he refuses to give us a definition because you know what? Paul's not interested in us being textbook smart. Paul's not interested in us being theologians. Paul's not interested. He's not going to let us get away with, I can define what love is. You know what he wants us to be able to do? To describe love in real sensible terms. He wants us to put the boots on the ground on what love is. He wants us to be able to describe what love is. And so here's how he describes love, not as a commodity, but as a capacity. Verse 4, love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things. It believes all things. It hopes all things. It endures all things. Love never ends. What a beautiful passage. One of the most beautiful. You know, that's one of those passages we Christians, we go, that's in our book. Right? I mean, that's in our book. And we put it in frames and we put it on coffee mugs and we greet each other in the morning like with a cup of joe and a mug that says, love is patient, love is kind. And we drink, Right? And it's beautiful, and it's poetic, and, and scholars talk about, man, I, you know, scholars are kind of like, it's so beautiful, it must have been a hymn. Like, Christians must have sang this in their churches in those primitive, original days of Christianity. Or other scholars say, no, no, a Christian poet early on in that first century wrote this out, and Paul had it, and he just copied and pasted into his letter to the Corinthian church. And there's almost this great focus on how beautiful it is. But here's the problem with the focus of how beautiful it is. We can lose the insight and the rawness and the grit of what this is talking about. Because underneath the poetry, underneath the hymn is conflict. Everybody say conflict. It's conflict. Every description of love that Paul talks about has a context of tension in the relationship. I don't know of any great relationship that doesn't have tension, except for Sherry and I, but outside of that. I don't know of any church that doesn't have tension in itself, except for Cross Point Church. I don't know of any parent with their child that doesn't have tension, except for me and my perfect pastoral kids that levitate in our home. Paul is not trying to lift us up to some sentimental heights where nothing bad happens and everything's polished and everything's clean and everything's a coffee mug and a, and a picture frame. Paul is talking about a crisis in the church. When he says that love is patient and kind, do you know what patience is? Patience is when somebody harms you and you refuse to retaliate even though you have every right to retaliate. That's patience. Do you know what kindness is? When you get to the root of that word kindness and you really study the biblical idea of kindness, what kindness is, is it's when an enemy 
not only has harmed you and you refuse to retaliate, but you actually respond to harm with active kindness. You're like, who does that? I know, right? You want to know who does that? Jesus. God is love, the Bible says. And how does God express his love for us? That even though we rebelled against him, even though we sinned against him, he refused to give us what we deserve. If I got what I deserve, I would be in hell tonight. But God refused to place his wrath on me. God refused to condemn me forever and ever. In fact, as opposed to being impatient, he was patient. And as opposed to being unkind, he was kind. He was kind in sending his only son into this world to pay the penalty for my sin. Kindness is Jesus up on a cross dying, stripped naked of all his clothes, and saying, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. That is kindness. And you know what Paul is asking us to do? He's asking us to reenact in our relationships that kind of patience and that kind of kindness. Not only that, love is patient, love is kind. But then it says that love is it starts talking about what it doesn't do. Love does not envy or boast. Some of your translation says love is not jealous. What is jealousy? What is envying something? Envy in the Bible is two things. Number one, it's I want what you have. That's envy. Jealousy. You have something. I want it. I want it really bad. I wish I could take it from you. My parents are here in town. They drove my brother's car up from Oklahoma City. You know what kind of car my brother drives? A Lexus. And I think, my brother should not have that car. <laughs> and then I've been driving it all week. Dad asked me if I wanted to drive it to church this morning. I was like, no, I'm driving my old car because I can't be coveting right before I preach. Jealousy is I want what you have. I feel like I should have the very same thing. In fact, jealousy is I feel like I deserve just as much as you do. But jealousy has a second, more insidious meaning. Jealousy is not only I want what you have, but sometimes jealousy is I just don't want you to have good stuff. I don't care whether I get it or not. I don't care if I have a Lexus or not. I just wish he didn't have a Lexus, you know. Now, that's not true. I'm actually happy for my brother, but I'm just giving you examples. See, jealousy is evil. In fact, the Bible describes jealousy as a demonic capacity. James chapter 3, verses 14 and following says, But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. Do you know that jealousy and envy in the church, in the home, husbands and wives, brothers and brothers, brothers and sisters, people in society, jealousy comes from demonic sources. Jealousy comes from Satan. 
And what Satan is trying to do through our jealousy is divide people and divide the church. I wish they didn't have that spiritual gift. I wish I had a speaking gift and not a serving gift. I wish I were a part of the elite group. Well, because I'm not a part of the elite group, I'm just going to take my ball and go away. I wish they didn't have good things. In fact, I wish they would fall flat on their face. Ah, jealousy, demonic from Satan. Paul says love is not like that. Love is not envious. It doesn't boast. It doesn't have that ostentatious bragging quality about it. I speak in tongues. I know theology. Or I'm not like those who talk in tongues. Love doesn't do that. Are you beginning to see it and sense the conflict here? It's not so pretty, is it? Love does not envy, it does not boast, it's not arrogant or rude. You know what rude is? Rude is lacking consideration for people's comfort in your presence. Rudeness is making people feel uncomfortable when you don't have to make them feel uncomfortable. That's rudeness. Love doesn't do that. Love doesn't, love does not. In rudeness, stoke the fires of other people's insecurity to make yourself feel better. For some people, it feels better for them to have other people feel low because it makes them feel tall. Love is not rude. It does not insist on its own way. Mine attitude, or it's, you better go my way or the highway. It's not irritable. Irritable talks is kind of an anger that's boiling just beneath the surface, waiting to explode at the first moment. Love isn't iterable. It's not resentful. Some of your translations talks about love doesn't keep a record of wrongs. That's what resentful is. You're carrying a filing cabinet of all the wrongs in the past that a person has done. And you're waiting for them to fall down once again so you can go. Here's the list. Not only have you messed up today, but you messed up last week and 10 years ago and five years ago. Love doesn't do that. Some people are just waiting, waiting, carrying resentfulness, that kind of cynical attitude. Love, it does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. The greatest insight I found personally as I was studying this myself, because I'm still learning this passage, we've all read it so many times, but the greatest insight I found this week was that verse 6, because I always read that as like, well, love rejoices in what's right and what's good and what's true, which, is, which would be correct. And it doesn't rejoice in, in wrongdoing and what's false and what's worldly and what's sinful. Love rejoices with the truth. But actually, what a deeper meaning of that phrase, does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth, is love does not look for all that is wrong. Love isn't like, I can't wait to find something that's wrong here. I can't wait to find something that's wrong with this institution or something that's wrong with this church. I can't wait to find something. I'm going to rejoice when I finally find that he is so wrong. I'm just waiting. I'm going to do investigative reporting. Isn't that what the world does? 
It rejoices. It's looking for actively what's wrong. You know what love does? Love isn't rejoicing at what's wrong. Love is trying to make every effort to find what is good, what is positive, what is right about him or her, what is right about them or it, what is right about this context. Love has a positive outlook that's looking for the thing that is worthy of praise. But unloving people don't do that. Are you a loving person? You can surely tell through that. Love. He goes back to positive characteristics. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Do you see in verse 7 how love is not focused on where people are at but where they're going? Do you see that? It's like that movie, Jerry Maguire. I love that line. I feel like Sherry wants to say that to me all the time when she says about Jerry Maguire. I love him for the man that he almost is. That's love bears all things, hopes all things. I'm loving you for the potential of where God is taking you. I'm loving you because I see in you not where you're at, but where you're heading, where you're going, where this church is going, where this community is going, where God is going. I am bearing all things. I'm enduring. I'm patiently waiting. I'm hoping for a good outcome. I have a future assurance that God is at work, and the work he has begun in you, he will be faithful to complete it. I don't make sure I'm going to put my arm around you until I see that happen in your life and I'm praying you will put your arm around me and see that happen in my life if you can be people like that in your marriage in your home in your church you will powerfully make a difference in this world do you know that see the rest of the world is just saying I'm going to love you when you when you get it right when you're where I want you to be I will love you but biblical love hopes it endures it's a stake in the ground he says in verse 8 Love never ends. So we ask ourselves, what's the measure of love? How do I know I'm moving in the direction of love? And here it is in one simple, crisp way. Love is the ability to be positive and unthreatening to people and things that are not lovely. It's love of the unlovable. That's the measure. Jesus said anybody can love their friends. Anybody can love people who get it all right. And surely we should love people who get it all right and encourage people who have it right. But you know you are going to a higher plane of existence when you can forgive your enemies, when you can pray for your enemies, when you can forgive people, when you can major in the majors and minor in the minors, when you can let the small stuff fall off the back, when you can love those who are not yet completely lovable, then you are walking in God's kind of love because that is how God loves you and I. That's how he loves us. I, always, I, I love Augustine. Augustine said famously, and this is, a, this is kind of a value at Cross Point. Augustine said famously that in essentials you need unity. In non-essentials you need liberty. In all things you need charity. And what you and I have to do is we have to, in our relationship, say, what's essential? What are the things that we have to be united on? What are the things that are worth fighting over? But what are the open-handed things? What are the, what are the things that we can say, hey, we might not agree here, or we might not have our lives together here, but that we can still live with this kind of mess here? Because you're going to have to live with some kind of mess here. And in all things, we have to love each other. 
I don't think Paul is saying that you are to be gullible or a floor mat or let everybody walk all over you. But I think in this context, he's saying you as a church are focusing on things that are minor. And you're making little hills in the mountains and you've you got these conflicts. and You're making a big deal out of nothing. Why don't you just let it go? Don't you realize that God doesn't treat you like that? God loves you. So love one another and pursue this love. And ask yourself, am I a loving person? You're like, man, dude, dude, I I see it's a priority, and I see that's the measure, but I am not there. Like, he is describing and putting his finger in very sensitive spots in my life right now, and I need help. I can't just come to church and you say, pursue love, and I'm just going to be a loving person. Like, I need something more, preacher. You've been walking down my street. You've been stepping on my feet. You've been elbowing your way into my life, but I need some help here. Offer me something. What is the secret? What is the key? What is the principle? What do I need to become a more loving person? Read the rest of the chapter, 1 Corinthians 13, verse 8. He says, love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it's going to pass away. For we know in part, we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, what's the perfect there? Coming of Jesus, new heavens and the new earth. The lion and the lamb are going to lay together, amen? There's going to be no more weeping or sickness or sorrow or confusion or sin anymore. It's going to be a whole new world. Jesus said in Revelation 21, behold, I am making all things new. He's going to bring a new heavens and a new earth. That's the perfect When the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. What's he talking about there? He's talking about the immaturity of seeking flamboyant gifts over love and relationship. The immaturity of putting pragmatism before principles, putting money before God is childish. You know, when I was a child, my favorite holiday was what? Christmas. I was going to get the G.I. Joe to come food grip. Amen. And now I've become a man and I could care less. I just want Thanksgiving and turkey. Amen. Because you grow up. It's wonderful that kids get little presents. I love that. I'm not going to take that away from them. And spiritually, the same thing is true. We're seeking outward appearances. We're seeking outward, impressive ways to be loved and to love. How childish. She says maturity is letting go of those outward things and beginning to embrace maturity. And what is maturity? Embracing the things that last forever. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been Fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three. But the greatest of these is love. What's the secret to love? Let's say there's two observations. The first observation is that I love that Paul personifies love. Love is. He doesn't say loving person does this and that. He says love is. That's the first thing. Personify. I think that's on purpose. 1 John chapter 4, verse 18 says that God is love. 
But then the critical phrase is verse 12. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. Now what's he explaining there? God's saving knowledge of the person. And what he's saying is the secret to life and certainly to love is are you fully, everybody say fully, fully known by God. Knowledge in the Bible is a relational word, an intimate knowledge, an intimate relationship. And how can you know that you've been fully known by God? You are forgiven. You have come to Christ. You have said Jesus came to die and to defeat death, and I believed in Jesus. He has given me his spirit, and God has fully known me. He always knew me all along, but he's fully known me now in a saving relationship with him. And Paul is saying that the secret to being a loving person is being able to rest in God's love for you. Do you know that you're loved by God? Do you know that you're forgiven by God? I'm not talking about like I can go to church and sign a doctrine statement. Like, like are you walking in the gospel and the good news of his grace and his forgiveness? Are you rested in your soul in God's love? Because you know what makes us antsy and, 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 and lacking content and, and makes us angry is when we begin to walk away and we begin to say, I'm missing something. Well, what we're missing is not stuff or people not doing what they should be doing. What we're missing is rest. Jesus said, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest for your soul. I will fully know you because you know what we want? We want to be fully known. We want to be loved. And until we are convinced of God's love for us, we won't be loving person. There was a passage that was brought up in uh, our life group recently that I wanted to read because I feel like that the key is that you deeply realize that God loves you. Zephaniah, this was brought up in in Life Group. I love this passage. Zephaniah chapter 3, verse 17. Listen to this and make this the banner over your heart. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. And that's for the people of Israel who are so messed up at this point in time in their history. Who do not deserve God's love or to be quieted or anything like that. Zephaniah is having to say something he probably doesn't even want to say. God loves you. He dances over you. He sings over you. You are the apple of his eye. And you're like, how can I know? How how am I supposed to know? How can I remain convinced of God's love for me when I know what's in my heart, when I know what's in my mind? You look to the cross. It's the cross that's the optic to God's heart for your life. And when you walk in the reality of that, you are given resources in abundance to God's love. 1 John chapter 4. Verses 18 and following. There is no fear in love. But perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment. And whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. Do you believe that? 
Because that's the difference. That's the difference maker. God doesn't want us working for love until we are rested in his love. So many people are trying to do their spiritual life in their own strength. So many people are trying not to boast. Try not to be rude. I'm going to try not to be irritable anymore. I'm going to try to be more patient. I'm going to try to be more kind with those who are not kind with me. What you have to do is surrender and say, you know what, God? I can't do this. I've got to surrender and open up my hands. I'm a broken person. I've been seeking love in the world. I've been seeking love in religion. I've been seeking love in my own performance. I've been seeking love in money or things or pride or possessions. And now I'm going to give all that up. I'm going to turn away from all of these functional saviors that do not work. And I'm going to turn to the one savior that can save and give me rest. And when you have rest, you will become a loving person. The secret is a relationship with God to rest in his love for you in Jesus Christ. Have you done that? You know, if you're not a believer, you're like, how do I become a Christian? How you become a Christian is you stop and you turn and you admit, I am weak and sinful. But the Bible tells me that God is patient for sinners. The Bible says that God hates sin, but he loves sinners. The Bible tells me that Jesus came to forgive me. When you turn and call on the name of Jesus, you will find rest. You will be saved. But for Christians, have you turned to works? Have you walked away from that message? Are you trusting in yourself? Are you trying to do everything in your own strength? Are you lacking rest that Jesus wants you to continue to walk in? You know how you do that. You continue to walk in being fully known. I am fully known. God sings over me. He dances over me. He loves me. That will give you the capacity to pursue love. A love that's a priority over gifts. A love that is measured in loving what's unlovable. A love that's rooted in a relationship with God. Let us pray.